Hello, and welcome to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities. I'm your host, Sean Creighton. In my current role as NACU president, I have the honor of working with an amazing group of independent colleges and universities. I'm a huge admirer of their approach to teaching and learning. They provide an integrated, liberal, professional, and civic education. As a result, the NACU campuses graduate extraordinary professionals for a global workforce and society. Also, their campuses are beautiful. About our podcast, we will focus on topics related to higher education. We will bring in guests that wrestle with current and future challenges. They'll include college presidents, provosts, professors, researchers, authors, disruptors, reporters, strategists, and maybe even a futurist or two. They'll help us expand our window into the world of higher ed. Thank you for being here. And without further ado, let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Maeve Adams, who is an associate professor of English at Manhattan College, where she also directs the Digital Arts and Humanities program. Born and raised in Northern California, she moved east to go to college and graduate school, completing her PhD at New York University. Her main area of expertise is 19th century British literature and politics, though she is also a technophile, equally fond of writing about Victorian novels and playing and designing video games. She lives in Brooklyn and is currently on sabbatical and completing a book on the 19th century literatures of protest that continue to animate modern ideas of resistance. Maeve Adams, welcome to the NACU podcast. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So, you know, I'm familiar with Manhattan College, and I've had the opportunity to walk across the beautiful campus, And uh, but obviously our listeners maybe have not all been there. Could you start out by telling us a little bit about Manhattan College, and then, you know, also your background and in, in the main areas that you teach in? Manhattan College is a small liberal arts Catholic college in the Lasallian tradition. De Lasalle was the patron saint of teachers. He's also a patron of social justice. So the campus is really committed to a variety of intertwined principles, mm-hmm. uh, not least of which are the sort of principle of social justice and the related commitment to uh, education as liberation. Yeah, so uh, it's been around since the 19th century and uh, has had a storied and uh, admirable history um, mm-hmm. in New York City, where it's located in the Bronx, mm-hmm. in the north of the city. I came to Manhattan College um, in 2013. I'm a associate professor of English, uh, but I teach in a variety of different interdisciplinary programs. Uh, film studies. I teach uh, also in the women and gender studies uh, program, and I am director of the fairly new, two years now, uh, digital arts and humanities program, um, which we founded as uh, one of the many interdisciplinary programs. So digital arts and humanities is a little different from things like film studies and women and gender studies, uh, which are also interdisciplinary mm-hmm. programs, insofar as it's more of a multidisciplinary program, or at least that's how I uh, think about it, combining fields, technical fields, with more t- traditional humanities and social science fields. Yeah, I'm going to actually want to get into that a little bit more to, to understand it. But I wanted to, you know, in the intro, I mentioned that 
you like playing and designing video games. And uh, <laughs> a couple of questions here, like, would you call yourself a gamer? And then, you know, is that why you sort of gravitated towards the digital arts and humanities and, and sort of like, what came first for you, the humanities or gaming or did they evolve together? You know, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think probably they evolved together. I'm, I, I don't think any other gamer would recognize me as a gamer, not only because the gaming community has traditionally been fairly hostile to women, but also because I don't play video games um, all the time. I play them as part of my research um, and as part of some work I do on the side of my research, more creative work. I work with a, a writing partner on creative projects, including some video game design. Um, but these things really did kind of emerge in tandem with one another. I've always been really interested in technology. I think of myself as a historian of technology as well as an historian of literature and um, gaming as one of the most pervasive, mo popular, modern forms of entertainment that's delivered to us digitally is something that has always really fascinated me. Mm -hmm. So when I first became involved with the initiative at Manhattan College to found a digital arts and humanities program, which was an initiative that was founded by faculty across the college, um, I came to kind of lead that project through getting involved as someone who was sort of assisting a group of people in thinking about what it might mean to found a program like this. Mm -hmm. So I, beca I became even more interested in video games because they are often narrative forms, so they're allied to the kinds of things that I study in my literary studies, but they obviously take different forms of expression than novels or poetry, although those, we do find fiction and poetry integrated into video games. Um, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, became really interested in uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. And I taught myself how to build virtual reality immunity, um, which is a platform. It's a piece of it's essentially a software that allows you to build virtual reality quite easily hmm. um, without a ton of experience. So I taught myself that um, while teaching it in a course on Victorian literature. But I taught myself how to, how to produce virtual reality because I think it's a really fascinating medium. It bears a relationship to other narrative genres that interest me. But also because I work on the Victorian period, which is the period of 19th century British literature, mm -hmm. I think it bears really fascinating resemblances to the kinds of virtual reality that were created by Victorian writers, namely realism, right, which is not just a, a necessarily a realistic description or depiction mm -hmm. of the world, um, but one that bears a resemblance to reality. Um, and so virtual reality was really fascinating to me for that reason. Um, and then, as I mentioned, I work with a creative partner on projects that are not scholarly. Both of us are really committed to the idea that creative work has a relationship to the world we live in and might even offer some ways of managing our relationship to the world that we live in. Mm. And uh, both of us were really concerned about the state of affairs um, that uh, had been the consequence of Donald Trump's presidency mm -hmm. and how powerless people felt. Um, in the in the face of the changes that he was making to our democracy, and yet how obviously people wanted to have an impact on that. You can see on Twitter people responding to his posts, people really wanting to affect him and affect the decisions that he was making. And of course, we saw across the country protests cropping up all the time, everywhere. People, you know, increasingly politically activated, more and more people running for office. These are people who really wanted to make a difference um, and. We wanted to do something more lighthearted 
and kind of gamify that hmm. uh, idea that people want to have an impact mm-hmm. on uh, the presidency. So we invented a game uh, called President Disaster, which is a um, it's a kind of choose your own adventure text based game where you uh, you play um, the thirty fifth chief of staff to President Disaster, and you have to manage the crises that he creates in the world. Um, and of course, I've just given away that uh, it's. Uh, uh, kind of meant to be a kind of parodic reflection of the president. Mm-hmm, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, of course, we said it b- bore no resemblance to real life or any real people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's kind of, you know, the kinds of stuff that I've, that I've done. And it's related to my scholarly work, but also related to other things in the world uh, that are sort of outside of my scholarship yeah. and teaching. So you, I mentioned you're on sabbatical. And we still are living in this time of all COVID all day long. I guess, you know, what's it like to be on sabbatical during COVID, you know, and and is a sabbatical different during COVID? It's a question that I'm not sure I can answer insofar as I've never had a sabbatical before this one. Uh, So, you know, I don't, I don't really know what it would be like to be on sabbatical, although I can imagine Mm -hmm. traveling more, uh, uh, going to archives. Um, Although it's interesting because, you know, one of the things I think is really fascinating about this period is how people have stepped up so quickly with such a commitment to the power of technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for example, the librarians at Manhattan College work tirelessly to get materials to faculty books, copies of articles, and interlibrary has been incredibly helpful in terms of getting materials to scholars so that they can continue doing their work. Yeah, no, when I was thinking about the sabbatical question, I, like, I would want to be like sitting in New York Public Library. <laughs> You know, or one of my favorite places, yeah. <laughs> just head down, thinking, writing, researching, having access to, to archives. But it, you're right, you're, you still have that access. Or as you're saying, the librarians have been able to also pivot in a way to, so we didn't lose um, those types of resources, which we're so dependent yeah. on. So the research, let's talk about that, or, or the book that you're working on. <laughs> it's a 19th century literature of protests that continue to animate modern ideas of resistance. Without giving away the whole the whole book story, uh, you know, can you share? I guess you know what some of the major parts that you've been working on, and what drew you to this topic. I mean, I've I've always been someone who's really politically engaged and active, and I think the 19th century, which is you know the period that I specialize in, um, is a period that not only saw major social and political changes um, for minorities, for women, for immigrants, for the poor, um, but it also saw the invention of all of these forms of expression, not least of which are literary, that helps to conceive of not just how we object when we or others that are around us are experiencing oppression, um, but that also in many ways conceived of the very ideas that undergird those forms of protest, Mm -hmm. The, the idea that we are political agents, for example. Uh, and the way that we understand what it means to be politically active. I see often in my students some anxiety, and I think this is also just, you know, where they are in their development, anxiety around what it means to be politically assertive. Um, be assertive at all, but be politically mm-hmm. assertive. Oftentimes students say things like, well, I don't get very involved in politics. And I always say to them, well, by not being involved, you are involved. Mm-hmm not simply because you live in a world where there are politics right, kind of floating around, um, but because by not acting, by not speaking your mind, 
you are telling people around you that you are comfortable with the status quo. And that's fine. That's a position you can have, but that's not the position that you want to take. Mm -hmm. Then you might as well learn how to understand yourself as a political agent who has the power to express yourself um, and your beliefs. Um, and so, you know, 19th century literature, as I said, is not just a form of writing that reflected the changes that were going on around the people who are writing these books and the readers who are reading them, but it's also a period that's conceiving of the very idea of political agency. So, you know, the book is about those ideas mm -hmm. of political agency that are tied to the right to resist oppression. And um, so I've been working on specifically a couple of chapters, one about silent protests, which is about primarily about the work of a 19th century novelist, Elizabeth Gaskell, who I'm arguing uh, invented the idea that silence is a form or helped invent the idea that silence is a form of protest. Um, because we often think of protest as something that's very much out in the street. Mm -hmm. The protest is something aggressive and physical that requires physical bodies out in the, out in the world. But this particular novelist uses a lot of silence in her text to register a rejection of participation in a political system that doesn't uh, grant agency to the, the, the figure who is being silent. Mm -hmm. uh, so I've been working on that chapter and then another chapter about how the 19th century anticipated the Me Too movement. Those are a couple of things that I've been working on that are part of that project. And is this connected to, I know, I think once you, in a conversation we were talking and you mentioned, you know, teaching literature and social justice. And is this all a part of that work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't see my teaching and my research as separate activities, largely because I, I really enjoy both of them, and I enjoy thinking about these questions. And so, mm -hmm. um, as I say to my students, I'm a bit of a hedonist. I seek pleasure in all parts of my life, and if teaching can supplement the experience that I have when I'm thinking and writing about books that I love, then uh, that teaching is better for it um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I'm more passionate and more engaged. Um, and, you know, I, I'll say this about sort of the way I approach my teaching. I'm a literary historian, but I don't want to live in the Victorian period. It, it wasn't a great time for people like me. It wasn't a great time for a lot of people other than, you know, white men. I like the Victorian period and the ideas and the literature that was produced by it, in part because it helps me think about questions that are persistently thorny in the modern world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I know people get kind of riled up about relatability, right? They say, well, this book is relatable to me. And, you know, obviously I share that because mm -hmm. when, some, when a student says this book is relatable to me, the problem is they don't see a difference between the book and their life, right? They flatten the distinctions mm -hmm. between the two things, the differences that can in fact show us something new about the world. When we see only sameness between two things, we haven't learned anything new about either of those things. It just replicates the thing we already know about ourselves or about the world or about a problem or a question. But when we think about a persistent relevance of a text in the modern world, it allows us to see that text as helping us see new things, mm. ask new questions, understand the present, which is so very, very different from the past, from the perspective of a past that is unfamiliar to us. It defamiliarizes mm -hmm. the present and the questions and problems that we're facing. So, for example, you know, in my um, gender and literature class, I teach uh, fairy tales, and I pair those. One of the things I'm really interested in thinking about there is the way that fairy tales 
codify conceptions of gender um, mm-hmm. and gender differences that are not liberating, right? Mm-hmm. The happy ending that only mm-hmm. allows for a woman to achieve happiness through marriage mm-hmm. and, and often through domesticity, being kind of stuck at home cleaning floors. Um, so I pair fairy tales with a couple of modern texts that help us use fairy tales to kind of critique modernity and vice versa. So, for example, in my gender and literature class, we do fairy tales. We do a film that I absolutely love, um, which is Mad Max Fury Road <laughs> with Charlie Theron in the main role. Um, and then we also watch another film that is probably my favorite horror film of all time, which is Rosemary's Baby. Um, if people haven't seen it, it's one of those things that I don't care about spoilers. I think that knowing what happens at the end of something is actually a fun way to see how it unfolds because the unfolding is the more important part than the ending. So I don't mind being spoiled on things. But Rosemary's Baby is the one, uh, is the one outlier for me in this. It doesn't help to know what happens at the mm-hmm. end in terms mm-hmm. of thinking about how it also codifies gender roles in this really oppressive way. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of how I approach my teaching. I always combine sort of older texts with newer philosophies. In, in more modern texts that help us think about the persistent relevance of these questions, whatever they're raising. And your students, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, when talking about politics and some other areas that there's a certain anxiety in this context, in, in the classroom, when you're doing this kind of work with them, how are they responding to this type of, you know, thinking and, uh, and experience? It's a good question insofar as there's no single answer to that. Because our students, for example, our students tend to be more open-minded about sexuality, for example, and the idea that they're comfortable with recognizing the power and importance of the LGBTQIA movement mm-hmm. of the world. So they, they tend to be more ready to have harder conversations about the way that oppressive systems and ideologies persist from the past to the present race is harder for them Mm, mm, to talk mm -hmm. about, which of course makes it harder to teach in some ways. And Mm -hmm. and it's funny being a teacher, as you know, one of the most challenging things about it is that the days that are hardest are probably the best days because you're doing the best work as a teacher, getting students to think in ways they don't want to, but it's painful Mm -hmm. emotionally, right? When you're in a classroom and you're faced with students who are hostile to open-mindedness about something. Mm -hmm. And I'm, certainly not saying this is the case for all students, but questions of race, literatures about racism create more challenges, I think, for students in terms of thinking in more open-minded ways about the persistence of racism, for example, particularly in America. We, you know, with the election of Obama, a lot of people, not just students, but people across this country thought that racism was over, which of course we know mm-hmm. is simply not true. I mean, we, we see racist policies and practices. We see racist protests continuing to happen in the world. And so this remains part woven into the fabric mm-hmm. of American society. And that is very hard for them, for many students to really confront. Um, but like I said, those days when you teach and they are the hardest days because Students aren't ready for those conversations. They are the most difficult days, but they are probably the best days. I do the same thing when I'm trying to teach those ideas and those questions that I do, for example, when I'm thinking about gender. I don't just teach in Victorian literature. Um, I teach also um, science fiction. Um, But when I teach my science fiction and fantasy course, 
racism and race are a sort of key component of that mm-hmm. curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, again, I do the same thing that I do in my gender and literature course or every course I teach. We read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein in that mm-hmm. class. One of the things I'm really interested in thinking about is xenophobia as a sort of a structure of thinking that is internal to societies, not just about how we relate to the outside world or just quote unquote, you know, far flung other countries, places, right? Um, but the way that we relate to communities inside of our own nations. So we read Frankenstein. We watch alongside of that the parody film Starship Troopers, which is a truly fascinating film about xenophobia and militarization and violence. Um, and then the final text in that unit that we read is um, the comic book issues of Black Panther. I'll be honest, I didn't, I don't love the film. I feel like I'm about to, you know, um, <laughs> set myself up for, you know, being, uh, uh, you know, around cancellation. Um, I don't like the way that film ends. I love the film mm-hmm. otherwise, but mm-hmm. I feel like that film uh, ends in a way that endorses a conception of inequality that I'm not super comfortable mm-hmm, with. Mm-hmm. Although I've only seen the film once, to be honest, because I was so thrown off by the end that I was like, oh, I, just, I don't know if I can do this again. <laughs> um, the comic books, though, I think are just truly stunning and beautifully written and beautifully mm. illustrated and really powerful for helping students to think about not just, uh, you know, uh, the sort of persistence of racist ideologies, but also what it means to find heroism in resisting them. And so it's a real triumphant end to that unit. Well, I was going to ask, you know, hey, do you have anything you recommend that we read or check out? But I think like during our conversation, many <laughs> different recommendations have come up of movies and books that we, you know, maybe many of us have read and we need to go back and reread yeah. them and reexamine them in, in the current context. And uh, in addition to uh, somebody enrolling at Manhattan College and having the opportunity to experience your class firsthand, you know, where else can people go to learn more about your work and what you're thinking about? Other than the creative work uh, that I work on, the, and, and, and that has only seen the light of day in the form of President Disaster, the video game, which you can download for your phone. Uh, mostly my writing that's out there in the world uh, is in the form of academic, mm-hmm. you know, scholarly writing. So I am sort of aiming to do more writing for a slightly wider audience. You know, as an expression of my politics, I find it tiresome, the idea that only a few people are ever going to read the scholarly work that I write because <laughs> it's really addressed at other scholars. Um, right. A recent article of mine in the English Literary History, it's a journal, about Walter Scott, who is a 19th century no- novelist, and the invention of uh, the nation-state as an idea I have another article about geological illustration, uh, which doesn't seem totally related, but it is about uh, the way our idea of nature as something that we can extract resources from comes mm-hmm, from the mm-hmm. 19th century also. Primarily, my stuff is available um, you know, in scholarly venues. Um, sure. Well, even the piece that you're working on now on your sabbatical, it, it, I can imagine it going in two different directions where it is an academic scholarly piece, or it's also a book uh, found at your local bookstore in the nonfiction section that really dives into protests and, and connecting to today, and which I would imagine a lot of people would be uh, attracted to reading. You know, I've actually been in some discussions with a couple of editors who have expressed interest in me writing a second version of it, where mm-hmm. it's a more, mm-hmm. uh, slightly more popular account of those protest movements. So I'm, so I'm, keen, I'm keen to do that. Well, Maeve, thank you very much for joining us today, being our guest on the NACU podcast, and... Um, 
giving us a glimpse into the, the thinking and the work that you're doing both at Manhattan College and as a scholar of uh, literature. And look forward to staying in touch and talking some more as we go forward. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Sean. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for being here for Connect, Collaborate, Champion, a podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities. This podcast is made possible thanks to our partner, public radio station 91.3 WYSO in Yale Springs, Ohio. Thank you, YSO. The New American Colleges and Universities connects our campuses to collaborate in the delivery of innovative ideas and to champion the belief that a comprehensive, liberal, professional, and civic education is essential to the future of our world. To learn more about our amazing campuses, visit nacu.edu, N-A-C-U dot E-D-U. See you soon.